Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. So today it's the 1st of December. It's the beginning of Advent, 24 days till Christmas. Hurrah! And 11 days till Election Day. I wonder how you feel about that. Exciting, scary times, depending on your levels of optimism or pessimism and your opinions on British politics as well. Uh, as we face this uh, sort of new step into the unknown, chaotic world that is British politics. Uh, and to be honest, as I look at the next 11 days, I feel like I'm flailing around in the dark. I don't know whether any of you feel like that as well. I haven't got a clue at the moment who to believe. I don't know uh, which leader uh, I should trust, if any of them. And even if I warm to a particular leader, do I agree with their policies? Do I uh, agree with their manifesto? And even if I agree with some of their manifesto, some of the, uh, the statements and all the ones that I've heard about so far, they've got some really radical uh, things in those manifestos. But should I even bother about that? Because actually the chances uh, of us having a majority government seem to be pretty uh, slim anyway. So anybody in a, uh, in a mixed government is not going to get those radical policies through. Uh, and what about tactical voting? Should I, should I look Look at that as well. It's hard to navigate for my small mind what on earth I should do in the chaos of British politics. But ultimately, I do have hope. I do have hope because otherwise everything can be a bit depressing, can't it? Even without politics, even if we laid that all aside, we all have all those moments or maybe days or weeks or months where our lives can feel like we're facing times of despair, where it can feel like we're wading through darkness. And yet for those of us who are Christians in this room, there is hope. Because into the darkness, into the despair and confusion of life, 
a child is born, a son is given. And this is why we as Christians, year after year, uh, continue to make such a massive deal about Advent and Christmas, because it reminds us that God broke into the confusion of this world, into the despair of our lives, into the darkness of government and politics, and brought hope, and brings freedom, and brings life and gives us something to actually rejoice in. Rejoice in. Jesus is alive. There is good news. There is a reason to rejoice. And this passage from Isaiah uh, chapter 9 is a passage of hope. It just flows with hope. It's a promise from God that one will come who will wipe away the darkness and distress of the past. And you see, at this time, Isaiah and the people of Israel have been going through uh, some really dark times. Ahaz uh, was the king at this point in history, and he has been causing absolute carnage around the place. He's raided the temple. He's stolen from the temple treasury uh, so that he can basically bribe and bring alongside uh, the corrupt Assyrian king uh, to sort of keep him on side. And then in an even more extreme uh, charm offensive, King Ahaz actually builds a shrine to the Assyrian pagan god in the middle of the temple. Now, to the people of Israel and to Isaiah, this would have almost uh, uh, been as though Ahaz had opened the doors, the gates of the temple, and said, come on in, all that is evil and not of God. We're going to worship you. That's what it would have felt like uh, to Isaiah and the faithful Israelites like him. It was absolute sacrilege. These were dark days for Isaiah and the Israelites. And into this time into this really horrendous situation, God gives Isaiah this incredibly powerful and hope-filled prophecy, one that would have rattled King Ahaz when he heard it, but would equally have given the people of Israel hope. And it still speaks to us today because this prophecy is oozing hope. Hope is like that carrot stick uh, that keeps the Israelites trusting God. Trusting that God knows the bigger picture, that he has them in his hands. Hope that keeps them longing and moving forward to a better future. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What a promise. What a hope. One of C.S. Lewis's less popular books is a a book called The Pilgrim's Regress. I'm sure some of you have read it. And it's about a, a guy called John. And the plot of this book is pretty simple. John lives in our world, uh, and he is driven by a vision that he had when he was a child. Uh, And one day, um, he was out playing uh, one day, and he wandered down the roads, and he heard uh, a beautiful sound of music coming, and he, he, he was drawn towards this music. And then he heard a voice say, come. And in his vision, he saw an island coming out of the mist. 
and it was absolutely beautiful. And on this island, in his vision, he saw people living in harmony and peace with each other. He saw different animals walking around in, in, in peace with each other as well. And this vision just grabbed him. And when the vision faded, uh, John describes in this book that he had a hunger in his heart for what he'd seen. And he went home, and as he was walking home, C.S. Lewis describes how he repeated himself uh, over to himself time and time again, I know now what I want. I know now what I want. And the rest of John's life became a pilgrimage, a journey to find his way home to this island of his vision. He'd seen what could be. He knew now what he wanted. He had, if you like, a holy hunger for something more, a world that was better than the world he existed in, existed in. And it became like his daily driving force. And this vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 is a bit like this vision described by C.S. Lewis. It's a vision of hope, of peace, of relationship, when the lion will lie with the lamb, the Edom of what could be. For the people listening to this prophecy of Isaiah thousands of years ago, and for us today, uh, this vision, this prophecy should give us hope, a hope and a hunger to see as we pray that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It should give us a hope and a hunger for a time that is better than the time we're in right now. When the oppressed will be free, when wars will cease and peace will come, when there will be huge rejoicing. In 2012, after Barack Obama had won his second term in office, he said this as part of his victory speech. I've always believed that hope is the stubborn thing inside us that insists, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us so long as we have the courage to keep reaching, to keep working, to keep fighting. I think Barack Obama in these words is expressing what we might describe as a holy hunger for something more, for something better, for change, for some sort of progress. And I think sometimes God gives us that glimpse of something more, something better. Maybe we get glimpses every so often of that. Maybe at the birth of a child or a grandchild, you get that glimpse of something more. Or when you're on a walk and you climb a mountain and you look at some incredible view in front of you and you just go, yes, there is more than this. Or maybe when we've had those moments where uh, we're deeply moved and we have that sense of being deeply loved by God, that God who knows us and loves us intimately, and we glimpse the so much more that God has for us. 
Or we see or hear a story about how God has transformed somebody's life and we just rejoice. We rejoice in what we know of how God has transformed that person's life. And there are so many more who need this. That glimpse of the so much more (laughs) gives us a deep holy hunger. What is your holy hunger? What has God stirred in your heart and in my heart? Maybe it's to to see a fairer society. Maybe it's to see peace come over the earth. Maybe it's to know Jesus more deeply for yourself. Maybe it's you want to be filled with the Spirit in a way that you've never known before. Maybe you want to see your friends and family be transformed as they come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to see nations come together and start to reverse the effects of climate change. Maybe that's your holy hunger. Maybe you want to see justice flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Maybe you have a desire to see the oppressed go free. What is your holy hunger? For me, I've just got back uh, from being in South Asia, as you know, looking at the work of IJM, International Justice Mission. And I've met lots of people who uh, were rescued from slavery and heard firsthand uh, some of the desperation of their stories. And then also saw firsthand the joy as they talk about what it feels like to be free and what it feels like for them to be reunited with the families that they've been separated from, what it feels like for them to now go to work and get paid uh, for their work. They have a hope and they have a future. And I have a holy hunger now to see this happen more. On one of the days uh, that I was in India, we spent the most extraordinary morning uh, with 30 people who had been rescued from slavery, from bonded labor. And all of them had been rescued over the previous two years. Uh, And at one one point on that morning, um, I got the chance to talk to a lady called Yadajira. She had a really haunted look about her. And, but when she smiled, her whole face changed. And I wanted to find out who she was and what her story was. So me and an interpreter uh, went over and we started a conversation. And she began to tell me her story. She told me how uh, some years before her husband had died. She was probably only 27, 28, 29 at the time uh, when I was talking to her. And her husband had died and she had two young boys. And she was really struggling to feed her children, look after her children on the minimal wages that she was earning in the silkworm industry uh, that she was working in. And uh, one day this man came to uh, the unit that she worked in and he offered her hope. He said to her, "Uh, if you come with me and work in my silkworm unit, then I will give you a house to live in, I'll give you a thousand rupees a week. Um, And that gave her hope for the first time. She described it was like a way out of the trap that she was in at that time. And so she went with him and she took her three-year-old son with her. Uh, and she told me about how she'd never left her village and the area around her village before, but she, she got in a vehicle with him and she traveled for miles and miles and miles, a long way uh, from her home. And she had no idea where she was. And she got to the place uh, where this man was taking her and he took her into a unit and up to the third floor of this factory. 
And then he opened the door and put her and her son in what she described to me as being a cage. And she was locked in that room, sometimes in chains, for six months. She was in complete isolation every day. Uh, she was working from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. She had no other light apart from what seeped its way into the room. And every day from morning till night, she had to separate the silkworm from its cocoon uh, in order uh, for the silk to be released using some really harsh chemicals. Uh, she was completely isolated during that six months from any other humans apart from her son and the man who owned her, who came every day and brought her two litres, uh, uh, her and her son, two litres of water to live on and also a small amount of food. And she described to me how she felt absolutely terrified every day because she didn't know what was going to happen to her. She just was so frightened all the time. She, she described how she, she didn't know whether she would ever get out of that room ever again. And she went through such a hard time that she actually got to the point where she decided that even though it would mean she would leave her son, the best way out was to commit suicide. And so one day she tried to hang herself in that room. And in some sort of twist of fate and irony, the owner came in and saw what she was doing. And actually, um, she said to me, she said, my owner saved my life and saved her life. And IJM found out about uh, this woman and others that were uh, trapped in this unit and they set about rescuing her, putting together a rescue uh, to get her out. Uh, and when IJM and the police and the government raided that particular place, this was the picture that they took of Yadajiri and her son at the door of the, the room, the cage, uh, which they had been held in for six months. And one of the IJM workers um, describes how it was one of the most distressing rescues they'd ever gone to because Yadajiri and her son were knelt, as you can see, at the door of that cage, screaming and crying out hysterically for help as they approached the door. And then when they, were, they brought uh, them out of the room, they discovered that because of the harsh chemicals uh, they'd been using in the silk industry, and because she'd only been given two litres of water, which was only just enough to survive on, she hadn't been able to wash her and her son's skin uh, of the chemicals. And so both her and her son have really badly scarred arms and legs uh, from the chemicals that have been used. After she was rescued, she was taken uh, to the government offices uh, where they gave her a certificate of release. This is the most important thing a person can be given because it means that she's now free, that the owner of that factory has no right to come and claim her back. She got her certificate of release. And then the government uh, gave her 20,000 rupees compensation and IJM took her back to her village and restored her to her other son who I met, who is a really lovely young man of about 10 years old, and, um, and also uh, put her on their rehabilitation program. And she's six months, she was rescued in February, she's six months into her rehabilitation. 
and IJM are working to prosecute uh, the guy who did what um, he did to her. And this is a picture of Yadajiri and her son today. Baseball cry, I'm sorry. Um, she challenged me so much because she is a woman who is, has nothing in the world's terms. She has no money at all. She's illiterate. In our society, she has nothing that is going for her. But she said, I have got a story and I have got a voice. And she told me as we stood there that she is going to use everything that she has, her story, her power, her strength, and her voice to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. She's an incredible woman, and she inspired me. And I saw in her a holy hunger for change. She doesn't know Jesus yet, but she's got a holy hunger for change. Where have you glimpsed the so much more? What is your holy hunger? Isaiah's prophecy gives us a glimpse of the how God will bring about this world of hope and joy and freedom. He won't do it through an army or a warrior king but he will bring about revolution through a child. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Yes, he will rule God's kingdom, but he will do it with justice and righteousness. His rule will never end. He is described in Revelation as being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He will be equal to the Father. He will be wonderful counselor, mighty king, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus, our savior. Into the dark days, into the despair of our lives and into this world, Jesus continues to breathe light and breathe hope and breathe a future and breathe freedom and breathe justice into the darkest places of our lives and into this world. There is hope. I want to finish by telling you the story of Raj. This is Raj, and that's Alan from Glasgow that was with us on a trip. Um, and on our penultimate uh, night in South Asia, I ended up sitting at dinner uh, with Raj. He works for IJM uh, in India. And I, along with some others that were gathered around our end of the table, just asked Raj how he came to work for uh, International, International Justice Mission. And I hadn't quite expected the story uh, that Raj was about to tell us, but I'll give you a brief resume. He told us uh, that he, um, his home village is in the north of India. And in the caste system in India, here's a Dalit, uh, which if you know about it, is the lowest of the low in the caste system. He described to us uh, that the, the lowest level of caste is like my body. And he is underneath the foot of the body. That's how he describes himself as a Dalit uh, and what that means. He explained that his whole village uh, of 300 people uh, was owned by a farmer. That means not the village was owned 
but the people were owned by a particular farm owner and landover owner. And every day they had to go out and work 14-hour days uh, for this particular farmer. And they were given as payment uh, a small amount of rice uh, once a week. And half that rice, they weren't given any money, and half that rice they would sell back to the farmer who would then give them a small amount of money so that they could go to the village to buy some vegetables. And Raj told us about how, as a boy, he was always hungry. He was always hungry, and he always just wanted more food. And, um, and then he heard, uh, and he, his face is like that the whole time, like it is in the picture. He's the smiliest person I've ever known. And, um, and he describes how he found out there was a school nearby where you got lunch and he never had lunch before and he became obsessed with the fact that he wanted to go to school because he could get lunch and uh, eventually he just went on about it all the time to his parents and eventually his his parents and the whole community gathered together uh, to put together the 20 rupees a year that's less than 20 pence a year it would cost to send him to school, basically so he could have lunch. And he described how he went, started going to school and he had lunch and he absolutely loved it. And then he found out that he was actually really good at, at academics as well and he got amazing marks and he loved it and he really flourished at going to school. And he was the first person in his village to go to school. Uh, but then then after 18 months, two years, when he was about 10 years old, um, his family couldn't afford that 20 pence a year anymore to send him to school. And so he had to stop going to school. And he was gutted because he missed the lessons and he missed his lunch as well. And then somebody came to him one day and said, you could be a sponsored child. There's an organization called World Vision, and they do this thing where you get sponsored so you can go to school. And he was like, bring it on. Uh, He was like, this is incredible. I can go back to school. And so uh, they signed him up to become a sponsored child, and Raj was able to go back to school. He flourished at school, not just because he was having his lunch, but he was brilliant academically. He, said, he was telling us how he, he, he was top of the class in everything, and he managed to get through the whole of primary school, and then he continued to be sponsored into high school. And then he started to go to what, what I understood to be like a breakfast club and run by the World Vision Project, and he started to hear some stories about Jesus, and he described to us how they just grabbed his heart. There was something about Jesus that grabbed him. And when he was 13, he gave his life to Jesus. And he was so liberated uh, by what he'd heard about Jesus. He went home to his village and he told his family all about this man called Jesus who loved them and died for them on the cross. And his whole family became Christians. And then he started telling everybody in his village. And this was really significant because these people were Dalits. They were the lowest of the low. And he was saying, there is a God who loves you and wants you to be his child, who accepts you and gives you freedom and forgiveness. And there's nothing that you can do to separate uh, yourself from that love. And his whole village of 300 people uh, decided to be followers of Jesus, and they built a church in their village. 
Raj went on uh, to finish high school and was the best scholar they'd ever had and then went on to university in a state-sponsored place at university uh, because they saw him as an exceptional student. And then through a whole series of other events, somebody's actually going to write a book about uh, this guy's story because it's so dramatic, Um, his whole village ended up becoming free from the bonded labor they were in to their owner. And they were able, they actually ended up staying in the village and the owner had to pay them proper wages. And now he was telling us that lots of other children have gone to school and to high school and three other people from his village have graduated from, year, from university. And it just struck me as I listened to Raj's story. 20 years ago, somebody somewhere in the world realized that Jesus is the bringer of hope, that Jesus is the bringer of freedom and life and joy. And they decided to sponsor some unknown child uh, who they've never met somewhere in India through World Vision. They had a holy hunger for change. And that small decision, that financial sacrifice, meant a child got their lunch. It meant that a child was able to go to school. It meant that actually a child was able to hear about Jesus, and that actually can't happen at the moment uh, because of the situation in India, but he got to hear about Jesus. It meant that that child went and told their parents about Jesus, and his whole family came to know Jesus. It meant that that child told the whole of his village about Jesus, and now there's a whole community in northern India who follow Jesus as well. It meant that that child grew up and went to university and got a degree, and a whole new world opened up to Raj. It meant that actually that child went on to work for World Vision and now he also works for the freedom of other people who are in bonded labor through his work with IJM. What an inspiring story. What an inspiring man. And so when I'm in my moment of despair about the world, about politics, about stuff that's happening in my life, I remember Raj, and I remember Vajiri and her children. How can you be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to give you a vision of the so much more? Where can you ask the Holy Spirit to be planting seeds of change in your heart, to give you a holy hunger? Good news is here. Jesus has come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end.